0: Meditations of our heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but I was so excited at the early service. So, a few months ago when I preached, someone came up to me after and said, You really need a new Bible. They said, It's shedding all over your clothes. And I said, Well, I've had it for quite a while and I like it. And they said, Well, we're going to buy you a new one. And I said, I don't want a new one. So, they took my Bible and sent it off to be recovered and rebound, and I am just so thrilled with it. I said, it's the little thing, so thank you to that person that did this. I love it. So today, what we're going to look at is this gospel reading. And before we get into the gospel reading, you know, it's, it's the Good Samaritan. It's one we all know, we've heard this so many times. And so when Father Tom sent me the readings when I was at RYM, Um, last week or two weeks ago, I read it and I went, oh, that's such a simple one to preach on, no big deal. And then I came home, and I started reading it and reading the other readings and thinking about it and reading commentary and listening to podcasts, and I went, oh man, this is like a a five-part sermon, I feel like, So I really had to work hard to condense it down, and as I was doing this, and I was kind of grumbling about it, saying, God, this shouldn't be that complicated. It's the Good Samaritan. Why is there so much information? I mean, Karen hit the big idea at the end there, go and do likewise. So we were done once the mic came on. That was good, Karen. That was good. But God reminded me when I preached last month, we talked about the Word and about being a Bible Christian. And... This isn't like what he reminded me was, you don't read the Bible once and say, did it, good, good to go. It's something that we constantly have to do, and every time we read it, we get something more out of it, and God reveals something new to us, and as we study it and do these things, there's always more that we get. And so that's kind of was the case with the parable of the Good Samaritan, a story we have heard a lot, a story that probably most of us could tell you about. But when you really jump into it and start studying it, it reminds you why we're supposed to constantly be in the word and in prayer and do these things. So it was a good reminder for me as I studied and prepared for today. So the big idea for today is really that Jesus loves us unconditionally. So are we loving our neighbors through him? So as this parable starts, or as this starts with the attorney, the tax, or the lawyer, Um, Jesus is moving into his last year of life, his last year of his three years of ministry. And he's calling people to be disciples of his. And what he's calling for is true disciples, not people that are just curious. I think as we can go through the Gospels, we see a lot of people following Jesus. The crowds gather, they get excited, they get fed, there's healings, demons are cast out. But if you go back to the beginning of this chapter in Luke, you know, Jesus, Jesus is sending out the 72. They've had so many people come and join in with Jesus and are excited about it, are curious about it. But when it comes down to the sending out, there's 72 being sent out and there's 12 disciples. You see, Jesus is not looking for people that are curious. He's looking for people that are committed. If you look back at Luke chapter 9, it said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, Jesus wants a commitment. He's saying, deny yourself, your ambitions, your own desires, your own will, and submit submit everything to me. Refuse to associate with the person that you were before you knew me. Take up your cross, and even if I ask you to die, be willing to die. Submit in obedience to my will and my word. And that's a really hard call, but it's the true call to true discipleship. And I think we see that in this parable of the Good Samaritan. So this parable really starts with, or the beginning of this section starts with, um, verses 25 to 28, and that's kind of a theological section of where it says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So that's kind of the theological piece. And then we move into verses 29 to 37 where it's the parable, and that's the practical piece. And really, if you look at it further, it's broken into three segments. The first segment is the, a, a lawyer that's putting Jesus to the test. And he's questioning, how do I get eternal life? And the lawyer, like the Pharisees, are often putting Jesus on trial, and then they try to justify themselves. And Jesus does what he often does. He flips it around and asks him to answer the question. And then he instructs him to go and do it. And then in the second segment of this, the lawyer tries again and says, well, who is this neighbor that I'm supposed to be loving? And Jesus, once again, really doesn't answer the question directly, but responds with a parable. And then finally, at the end, in this third segment, we learn the reaction of the lawyer to the parable, when Jesus, once again, forces him to answer the question, who is your neighbor? And again, Jesus instructs him then to go and do it. You see, the lawyer wants to debate Jesus. The lawyer wants to have a debate, but Jesus shows us he's not interested in having a debate. He's interested in what one does. So who is this lawyer? I mean, we don't know who he was, but we know that he was a legal icon. Now today when we think about lawyers, we often think of criminal law, civil law, but we don't really think about religious law. But in a government like Israel's, these were the law experts, not in civil law or Roman law, but in the law of Judaism. They were, the religious, they were interested in the religious law, starting with the law of Moses. And as the Pharisees worked to discredit Jesus, which they did from the very beginning of his ministry, if you looked back at Mark chapter 3, they were plotting against Jesus. They were plotting how to kill him from the very beginning of his ministry. They wanted to take this guy out. And to do that, they needed the consult of the religious lawyers. Now, these lawyers really didn't have any power or authority. They were just counsel for those who were in power. And so they needed, the Pharisees needed these guys. You know, the lawyer really could be compared with what we find with the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. Where Jesus tells But the tax collector, standing off to the side, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, that's who this lawyer was. He was the Pharisee. He thought he had it all together He knew all the answers. He had all the knowledge. He knew the answer to how to get eternal life. He knew the answer to who the neighbor was. He thought he had it all down. But he had no relationship with God. He had no relationship with Jesus. He had the head knowledge, but none of it had trickled down to his heart. And so, like the Pharisee, the lawyer didn't really need more information, he knew the Torah. He knew what it said. He knew the right answers. What he needed was transformation. What he needed was a heart change. He needed to turn from the sin of self-righteousness and turn to Christ. But he didn't even realize he needed that. He thought he was all good. But in this parable, he does ask one of life's greatest questions. What shall I do to gain eternal life? This is not the first time we've heard this asked of Jesus. We heard it in Matthew 19 with the rich young ruler. We hear that same story again further on in Luke. We hear a similar question to this in John chapter 6 coming from a group of people. And the reason they ask this question is because they recognize recognize that there is eternal life. There's something past this life here on earth. You know, it's really hard to evangelize people that if they just think you're born, you live, you die. And that's all there is. They have to recognize that there's more to it than that. That while our bodies may die, our souls will go on. And see, the Pharisees and this lawyer, they recognize that. They recognized that there was more to this life. And so he was asking the question to kind of mess Jesus up, to see what Jesus would say. See if they could test him a little further. And Jesus flips it around on him. You see, because there's only two options for us when we die. We get to spend eternity with God, or we get to spend eternity separated from God. That's the only two options. You're not going to be going and waiting around somewhere until you get it figured out. That's it. That is it. You're one way or the other, and you've got this life to figure it out. So on this first part of the reading from today... Jesus is basically saying to be in God's kingdom, you must love him perfectly. Because it says from Deuteronomy 6, when the lawyer replies, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. How many of you have got that down? Four absolutes. All, all, all. I don't know. I think we're in trouble. When you read that, you go, oh, man, I'm not doing that very well. And the other takeaway from this is that it's really all about love. It's not really about the law. Because when you love him, you will keep the law. But it starts with that love peace. You know, the Ten Commandments are made up the first half with how to love God, and the second half, how to love your neighbor. I mean, that's where it's, how it's made up. It's always love God first and then love others. So in this parable, we see that you might know the gospel, you might be able to come and recite the creeds and acknowledge what we believe, but if you don't know Jesus, you're lost. If you, if you only have the head knowledge piece, you're not going to make it. You're not going to be able to withstand the pressures when the hard times come, when the struggles come. You know, Jesus is saying here, the person who loves God perfectly, who loves others perfectly, who is completely self-denying, selfless, this person qualifies for eternal life. Not going to work well for us, because I'm not doing those things, and I'm in seminary. Still not working. So what exactly does this command do for us? Well, it reveals that nobody can keep this command. Nobody And I can't remedy my own sin, and I can't love God in that way. That's what this is revealing to me when I read it. I can't do it. Over in Romans chapter 7, it says So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing that I hate. Isn't that true for all of us? That the very standard we have from God is not possible because of our sin. We keep falling short. We keep giving in to the flesh. And the only way that it's made possible for us to love God and to really love others is through his son. Because only through Jesus will I know how to love God and love others and love my neighbor. Back in Matthew chapter 5, it said, Jesus said, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies." You see, this is what this lawyer believed. There was those that I could love, that was my neighbor, and there was enemies, and I could hate those people. I could hate those people. And so what he is saying to Jesus is, Do you have a different definition for neighbor? And Jesus is saying yes in this parable. And he does it in such a way that the lawyer has no way but to say, Oh, yeah, the one that showed mercy. Because there's no other option for him to say based on that parable. And Jesus goes on in this passage from Matthew to say, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just. And on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're called to be different as followers of Christ. We're called to be different. We can't just like the people that like us and dislike the ones that don't. You know, loving, your na- loving God means that one cannot place limits on whom must, they must love as a neighbor. We don't get to choose. G.K. Chesterton said this, he said, We make our friends and we make our enemies, but God makes our neighbors. The old scriptural language showed so sharp a wisdom when it spoke, Not of one's duty towards humanity, but of one's duty towards one's neighbor. The duty towards humanity may often take the form of some choice, which is personal or even pleasurable. But we have to love our neighbor because he is there. A much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. He is the sample of humanity which is actually given to us. Hmm. And you see, that really starts with our families. I don't think any of us here chose our families. We didn't get to go in the line and say, hey God, I want to go with that family down there. They look like a good bunch. Not how it worked. We didn't get to choose them. So really, they became our first neighbors. Many of us wouldn't have chosen the families we chose. But the families are a laboratory of neighbor love. Because we learn how to love our neighbor with our families. Because families are a microcosm of the world. When it comes to the church, we choose our church. But we don't choose the other people that show up at our church. We don't get to choose who comes into this community. And sometimes after a while, the church begins to kind of feel like our family. And sometimes that's good. But it also means we got an irritating cousin over here. It also means we have those people that we're not getting along with all the time. And so after a while, we feel a little frustrated because the leaders in that church have disappointed us and fellow members who see the world differently disappoint us. And then these people, their interests or their ministry priorities or their educational philosophies or their musical preferences differ from our own And doing life with these people is really not what we expected and not what we dreamed of. And see, this didn't just happen today. This has been going on since the early church. If you study the early church history from the very beginning, the Jews and the Gentiles that had come together and were following Christ, they didn't see eye to eye. And there was tension. And century after century after century, we find that the church has never been perfect And yet we're still called to love each other. In John 13, Jesus said, A new command I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You know, this week I was talking to someone, and they were telling me about a very frustrating experience they had had while they were helping someone else in our church. And they said, yeah, I had to to make a phone call to this person in the company, and they couldn't help, and then to this person, and this person, you know, how it usually is when you're calling and need customer service. And finally, they asked for the supervisor, and they said, by the time they got to the supervisor, when the supervisor came on the phone and said hello, they said, listen, I love Jesus, but... (laughs) And they went on to say, and I said, oh, that's never good when you have to tell the person you love Jesus. And they said, well, I, I do that at times because I have to remind myself that I love Jesus and hopefully it'll change how I respond to that person on the other end of the phone. You see, they'll know we are Christians by our love and yet how often we fail and have to say, I do love Jesus. I know that's a surprise. And we've all been there at times. We've all acted in ways that don't really reflect that love. But Jesus is saying... People will know that you're disciples by your love. You know, you want to hear a really good message on this, because I could have just played it for you. Alicia is here today, and she chaperoned the high school trip, and she spoke at breakout. But she talked about this very thing. And she really went into talking about how often the people that come against us, what we do is we spit back at them. We yell back at them. And we don't act any differently than they act. And so why would they want to come to know Jesus? Why would they want to be involved in a church? Why would they want any of this stuff if we're just doing the same thing back at them that they're doing to us? So you can go on YouTube and watch that. It was very good. But um, I, I won't get into all that or you'll have sermon number two today and you probably want to go to lunch. So in this, though, Jesus doesn't just tell us to love people. He tells us who, how to love people. He tells us how to love people in this gospel reading today, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. It it means that you interrupt your schedule. It means you use up your oil, your wine, and your money to achieve what is best for your neighbor. It means having a heart which wants to seek another person's good over your own. And it all goes back to picking up your cross daily and following him. Because it's not the normal response that any of us want to give. And yet, that's what Jesus calls us to. You know, a simple way to look at this is it's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And yet, oftentimes we feel okay passing by our neighbor. And then Jesus says, oh, that's your neighbor. I want you to minister to them. I want you to do something for them. And we go, really? Please. I'm in the Walmart checkout line. Please don't don't put me through this. I don't go to Walmart very often, so maybe the public's line for me. But the deal is, is it might be a stranger. It might be a stranger. But oftentimes these neighbors are the people that live in our own house, or live on our street, or we work with, or they come to our church. Oftentimes these are the people that are our neighbors that really at times have frustrated us and we want to go pass by on the other side because of something they've said or they've done to us along the way. You see, the lawyer's problem in this parable and our problem is not the definition of neighbor. It's really not. The problem is becoming the kind of person who, because of God's love and grace and compassion, cannot pass by someone on the other side of the road. That's the problem. Because of God's love and compassion, we can't pass by them any longer. But when we don't love God, and we don't recognize that he loves us, it makes it a whole lot easier to pass by these people. Max Licato said this. He said, God's grace has a drenching about it, a wildness about it, a whitewater riptide turn-you-upside-downness about it. Grace comes after you, it rewires you, from insecure to God secure, from regret riddled to better because of it, from afraid to die to ready to fly. Grace is the voice that calls us to change and then gives us the power to pull it off. You see, on our own, we can't do it, but with God's love and God's grace, we can change through the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives we can become different people than we were before we knew Jesus. And when that happens, we no longer can pass by our neighbor because we recognize that everyone is our neighbor. And God's going to place people in our lives all along the way that may inconvenience us. And yet he says, there's your neighbor. Go do this. And so as we read this parable, there's three categories of people that we can be. We can be the robbers, and say, what's yours is mine, and I'm going to get it from you. And all of us at time know what it's like to envy others in our hearts. We can be like the priest and the Levite, who said, what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. And we choose not to share our time and our talent and our treasure with those that we meet along the way. Or we can be like the Samaritan, the unlikely one, the one that shouldn't have wanted to help a Jew, who says, what's mine is yours, and I'm going to give it to you. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, he said, to abide in love means to have open eyes, to be able to see what only a few people can see. And most important is the one that allows oneself to be interrupted by God. That's where I struggle the most, to allow God to interrupt. I'm a very type A personality. I have a plan. Now, don't go down to my office right now. It's a total mess with RYM coming. But normally, I'm a very organized. It's like the schedule's here. I check off the boxes. I know what has to be done every day. And the thing that gets me every time is when God interrupts those plans. Because on a daily basis, God interrupts those plans. And the schedule changes. And you go home. And I can choose at the end of the day say, thank you, Lord, for not letting me have my way. Or I can go home and say, what did you do today, God? Look at all these things I didn't get done. Good job, i got to go in on my day off now. I mean, I can do that. I can do that. But it's a lot better when I can wake up in the morning and submit to God's will. And say, I do have a plan. There are things that have to get done. But I'm okay if I've interrupted today. I'm okay if today doesn't go as planned. You know, that's been an area of my life that God really had to work, that I could be okay with being interrupted by God. In 1 John it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. You know, we must be willing to fall at his feet every day and allow him to do with us as he pleases. You know, the world needs to know that there is hope through Christ. And it starts, really, with us being in the Word. It starts with us having a good prayer life. It starts with us cutting out that time daily to spend with Him. Because once I do that, He starts to change me. And I become that, a totally different person than I used to be. And when that happens, I start to look at the world around me differently, and the people around me differently. And with that change, I'll start to love people the way Jesus has loved me, unconditionally. You know, I was reminded as I was preparing for this sermon of um, Mitch Downs actually reminded me of it last month. There was this story, and I heard it when I was in college at USF, about this girl that was up at the University of Florida, true story, and um, her name was Ashley, and she was a wreck. Total wreck. Lived by the world's standards, had a terrible boyfriend that lived with her. But she thought she was just living the best life, doing whatever she wanted to do. And so things happened and she had to break up with the boyfriend, so she kicked him out. He was living with her. And she advertised for a roommate for her last semester of of college. And so this girl applies, Krista. And so Krista comes in and within the first day, Ashley's wondering what the heck she's done. Because this Krista girl is a crazy Christian. A fruitcake, as she called her. And she was totally frustrated that this was going to be her last semester of college. The semester that she wants to party, that she wants to have a good time. She's living now with this crazy Christian girl. And so Ashley said, well, I'm just going to bear and get through it, and hopefully she'll do the same. But you see, Krista had been changed by Christ, because Krista had come to know Christ very personally, and so she was very involved in Bible studies, and she liked having people over, and evangelizing, and talking to people, and so Ashley couldn't really get away from this. And so as a couple weeks go by of the beginning of that spring semester, Ashley's life kind of falls apart more and more, and finally, in different conversations with this fruitcake girl, Krista, she goes to her and says, what is it about you that's different? And so Krista shares the gospel with her. Now, Ashley had a mom and stepdad and brother that were Christians, but she, like her dad, was an atheist. So Krista evangelized to her, and they watched some different sermons, and they did some different things. And the Holy Spirit moved, and Ashley accepted Christ. And she went and told her mom and the stepdad, and they rejoiced, and her dad said he didn't understand, but he loved her anyway. And so, for the next few months, her life totally changed. She got involved in Bible studies. She was involved in the campus ministries. Her friend group changed because she was not the person she was at the start of that semester. And so, as the semester came to a close, she went up to Jacksonville to see her family, and her dad was buying her or ordering her a new car for her graduation present. And they order the car, and the next morning she gets up and she goes to church, and she goes to lunch. And she's on her way back from Jacksonville and has a car accident and dies. A tragedy. Two weeks before she's supposed to graduate. A month before she's supposed to move to California to start this new job that she's been striving and working hard for. And that could have been devastating to her family. That could have been devastating. It was terrible. But as a result of Christa, evangelizing her, she had come to know Jesus. And so they knew that she was not spending eternity now separated from God, but eternity with God. And as a result of her death, her dad came to know Jesus. And as a result of that, more family members came to know Jesus. And then that story got told to more and more students that would go up to Atlanta to Louis Giglio's Passion Conference. And more people came to know, all because one person, Krista, was willing to love her neighbor. Someone that was pretty much unlovable based on everything I heard and read about with this girl, Ashley. She wasn't someone that the Christians would necessarily want to associate with. But because Krista knew the call on her life and she knew what God would want her to do and what Jesus had died for on that cross... She put aside those things of saying, oh, I don't want to be with you, and said, I love you. And I want you to know Jesus the way I do. And so Ashley's life was changed. And her family gets to see her again, and more people's lives were changed. You see, that's what it looks like to love our neighbor. It may be inconvenient. We may get beat up a little bit. And we may have to give so much of those, our time and talent and our treasure But we do it because we know that this is not all there is. This is not all there is. There's a life after this. And as someone that loves Jesus, we should be striving to bring others to him and share that gospel with them. You know, the reason we go to RYM tomorrow with the high school group is, yes, it's a beach time, and yes, it's fun, and I'm thrilled that we have David and Sean and and Aubrey and Ava here that are going with us on the trip but we really go because we want them to come to a knowledge and love for Jesus Christ. That's why we do all the things that we do here at Christ the King, because we want people to know and love Jesus and be equipped to go out and share the good news with others and not pass by on the other side of the street when we see somebody in need, but walk over to them and see what we can do to help them. And we're not throwing stones, but we're showing the love of Christ to them as we go through our day-to-day lives. And so just as the Samaritan loved the wounded Jew as himself, Jesus says to us today, as he said to the lawyer, go and do likewise.